We are, uh, for those of you joining us today, for the first time, we are, we are trudging our way through Mark, and we are on the, what's called the Transfiguration in the book of Mark. All three of the Synoptic Gospels record this event, and it is uh, pretty famous uh, in Christian. If you're, if you're a Christian for any length of time, you probably have heard this story and read it. And Transfiguration is what it's called, and... This word is only used four times, the word transfiguration is only used four times in the New Testament. And here, uh, and Mark uses a slightly different word, he uses a word that Paul uses three times, and it is the word metamorphos. Does that sound familiar? Metamorphos? It's the metamorpheo word. And it uh, means exactly the same thing that it meant, uh, that it means even a common parlance in our time, something to be changed, transformed. And Christ metamorphoses into something new and different right in front of them. And uh, what I'm going to be interested in talking about today, we're going to read the text. What I'm going to be interested in talking today is about the place this has in the narrative. Because the place in the narrative, in Mark's unfolding narrative about Jesus Christ, his unfolding desire to, to prove his thesis, which began in Mark 1.1, that this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, to prove that thesis, he is going to he is he is architecting his narrative with uh, proofs, with evidences, based upon what uh, Peter had told him, and it's really wonderful. It's a it's a one and this account uh, it really doesn't make Peter look all that good even, and uh, which is kind of sweet too, and is a is a gift to us. So uh, this early Christian experience that you might not be familiar with, Peter uh, Peter is about to and Mark through Peter. Uh, we believe, uh, and tradition tells us, um, not the scriptures, but that Mark is uh, reporting what Peter saw. So uh, I'm going to look at that narrative, but I'm not content to merely look at the narrative place that this takes, but also its purpose in the narrative, but also its purpose redemptive history, and its purpose theologically. So I'm gonna, it's going to be concentric circles. It's going to get bigger as we go along, because I, I wanted to teach us things about how to live and how to, how to, how to deal with uh, our past, how to deal with weakness now, and how it will give us hope of a future glory, hope of future transformation and victory. So let's, uh, let's, let's read it and see what we will get from. We're going to read it. I'm going to briefly cry out to God for the Holy Spirit to fill me and you uh, for the reading of the word, and then we'll, we will um, dive in. Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 13, and after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves and he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah and Moses and they were talking with, with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, uh, it is good we are here. Uh, let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son, Listen to him. 
And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it that written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we have power together to grasp how wide and high and deep and great your love is for us. We'd have power again to see how the power of the gospel can affect us. That we'll have new hope and joy that someday we will be transfigured, we will be metamorphosed. And that's just beginning. I pray that the Holy Spirit, you Holy Spirit, would give me words to speak and give us ears to hear because we need that action in every part of this process. We need you to metamorphose us, to change us. There are men here, the women here that need metamorphosis, metamorphosis of their heart and their mind and their understanding by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. Forgive the sins of the one who speaks, for there are many. And open up your word to us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. So what is below the surface? What is below the surface? The, having been a pastor for 15 years in Atlanta, Georgia, planted a church in Atlanta, Georgia, in the, in, the, in the urban center. Having been a pastor there for 15 years, you, gave, you got suspicious of what was on the surface. <laughs> you got very wary of what the polish and the spit and polish and the perfection that people are presenting to you all of the time with so much charm. You learned what certain things meant and didn't mean. Oh, what was that? What was that? Oh, bless you. What was it? What's that? Uh, bless your heart, which means you're an idiot. <laughs> if a southern woman looks at you and says, "Bless your heart," she just said you're an idiot, and I feel bad for you. We have people from the south who can give me a witness right here, right now, right. And that, and so that politeness—it's a veneer. You know what a veneer is? I remember when my grandmother was an antique dealer. She had beautiful, beautiful furniture. I was at a museum looking at her furniture the other day, and, and there's beautiful furniture as a veneer. What makes it look so pretty, like mahogany, is a veneer, because mahogany is terribly expensive. And so even very, very beautiful old antiques, they have veneer. And I remember when they, they would chip off of the, of the old furniture in my, my grandmother's house, and she would explain to me, I was shocked that the whole thing wasn't that beautiful. It was just a little strip of beauty behind pine and some cheap wood. That's an innocent thing. Bless your heart's kind of innocent. What doesn't is, and what is not innocent, is the southern boy whose goofy kind of artless charm and friendly smile and his beautiful, beautiful wife and their beautiful children telling me every week how wonderful things are and how, 
how great they are, how great their marriage is. And then when the veneer gets pulled off of that, and he's been having sex with a prostitute in their, in their house, and everything just, bam, what's under the surface? <laughs> you know, I, it, it's, it's chilling when a person, when people like that are so convincing, so utterly convincing. And as a pastor, you completely, even though you know, even though you kind of know, you got to be careful about what's on the surface. Yeah, they, they fool you. You're like, man, that, it was just a colossal mess. So, all right, so, what's, and, I, and I asked that question. All right, so I'm asking that question for you, Peter, for us, we one together, for us to, to kind of open it up, maybe, maybe make us a little tender. Well, what's, because I don't know. And you could fool me. Uh, congratulations. You know, you can fool me. You can fool a lot of people. That's, you know, and that's, maybe that's what you're committed to. But, you know, as I was thinking about that, though, you know what I love? Is that under the surface of what our Father is doing, there's nothing but beauty all the way through. <laughs> there's nothing but his glory and the presence of his love and the presence of his purposes, and there's nothing but gold all the way down under the surface. And I think that's what the transfiguration is, is doing. It's, it's, it's God just kind of going, let me show you something. See that? See that? It's beautiful under there. It's gorgeous what I have under the surface. I'm not, I, I, maybe he's hiding sometimes. We're going to see he hides. There is some hiding that happens. But he's only hiding what's better <laughs> than what it looks. It's never worse. And so uh, the, the transfiguration is, is Christ's way of taking these three men. Now, his intentions in the narrative, he's taking these three men and he's, he's, he's taking them to, 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 to display to them to show them something of who he is. Why would that be important right at this moment? Why would that be so important in the story? Because it's going to get really, really bad. It's going to get really, really ugly. It's going, he's going to practically disappear. And the first place I kind of I want to see is I've kind of work this out of the text, work it out of the work it out of the purpose of the narrative, the craft of the narrative. He has been so victorious, demons, death, everything, sickness, disease, self righteousness. He's he's towering, right? And as his disciples finally name him as Christ, what does he say? All right, you get it. I'm glad you get it. The Holy Spirit showed you this now. They're going to kill me. You're going to betray me. I'm going to die naked, helpless, and alone. Nuh-uh. No, you're not. That's the first response. No, you're not. That, no, you're not. So how does he help them? You can see how can you get a picture of why this is important in the narrative right now? Why is he? What, 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 what would this do? What, in the purpose of the story, what, what would this do to the reader? Is reading is the reader getting a clue, and, and they're getting a clue, and maybe you have a hard time understanding it right now what the clues are. But he's slowly wanting to reveal to you that under the surface of his of, of what he's doing, there is a power and a glory 
and a beauty breathing and working its way. Now, all right, so, when I, uh, so the first place I want to take this is I want to talk about how the, the first place God, is, God hides his glory, where it's under the surface. It's under the surface of weakness. Why is this so important? Um, as Christ approaches the zero position, the, the place of evacuated physical, spiritual, and everything, as he dies, it's the weakest, it's the place, where's, and, and in a sense, it's the place in all of history where God looks the most absent, right? Where's God? Where, where's the love of God? Where, everything looks like it's gone, right? It's just, it's totally, it's zero hour. Christ is empty. There's nothing left. And in and, and and this moment of nakedness, and, and uh, I mean, it's shameful. It's interesting to watch uh, and to see different versions of the crucifixion. Uh, the crucifixion, and a lot of modern versions of the crucifixion, like Dolly and others, the crucifixion doesn't, it doesn't look as ugly. Well, one of my favorites is, uh, I think, Goya's crucifixions. And it's all about, where, where it's just, you kind of want to go, I don't want to look at that. It's, it makes me sad. Because when you, really, when you really picture the moment of torture, death, and execution on a dump, on the local city dump, you're like, that's not what, and all the friends are gone. Everybody, you know, John's standing there with his my mom, and every, finally, Christ is up his spirit. And what does everybody do? What does his mom do? They go home. Because he died. But here's the wonderful riddle that the transfiguration was trying to open up. When I am weak, then I am strong. Um, at the places and times that God has looked most hidden in history, what has been present? The radiance of his glory. Sometimes I think the bitterest and most poison pill of a prosperity gospel that tells you if you come to God, he'll make you rich. It's not just how ugly a lie that is. That's ugly enough. It feeds on some things that are true. God does bless us, right? And he blesses us abundantly and amazingly sometimes. But that's not the poison that it really gives you. The poison it really gives you is to tell you when you suffer, God has left you. And that's what I hate about it. It, is, it tells a lie that when you have suffered, when you have been alone, when you have suffered physically and emotionally and mentally and spiritually, when you are weak, when you are finally, when you finally, that, that, oh, well, God's not with you anymore. You see? That's the poison pill that's so terrible because it has taken suffering and weakness and pain and, said, and, and it's taken, taken away what? That they're holy and powerful. Yeah, the holy lamb of God, right? The holy. The transfiguration is meant to tell us and show to us that Christ never stops being holy and beautiful right under the surface. What's the point of that for us? Some of you come today with a load of guilt and shame about things you've done and places you've been things you've done with your body and your heart and your mind, 
places you've wondered if there's any restoration. And you know below the surface of who you are, there is nothing but an angry, bitter woman or a man who has hated everything. And you wonder in that weakness, what can enter my weakness and my ruin and my sin and my regret and my shame to make it different? And that's what Christ is meant to be at the cross, as a savior, as a rescuer, as a cleanser, as a metamorphoser. (laughs) That's probably not a word, is it? A metamorphoser of that which is weak and dead and ugly under the surface. I'm inviting you to give your life to Christ. I'm inviting you now in your heart, give your life to Christ. Give your zero to Christ, and he will give you all things. He will restore you and transform you. Some of you as believers, I want to encourage you that there are zero hours coming. Maybe you're near one. Yeah. Right before this, Christ has said, if anyone does not take up the cross and follow me, they can't have any part of me. Whoever seeks his life will lose. Whoever, whoever, whoever loses his life for my sake in the gospel will what? Will gain it and, and honestly will save it. And, and, and I want to tell you, I, I, I want to promise you, I want to commit to you that the zero hour is coming. The moment, if God loves you, it is. I want to walk with you in those hours. I want you to walk with me in mine because God has not abandoned us when we're dying and hurt and lonely and afraid. And I, you know what we need to do as a community in this time? Say that people's suffering is holy. And affirm it. Because it's the place of power. And we're getting a glimpse under the surface here. What else are we getting? Not just in weakness. We're also getting it in time. Now, this is really one of the oddest moments in the New Testament. Let's just face it. Uh, Two people who have been dead, one for 2,000 years and one for about 700 years, are talking to Jesus with Peter and James James and John present. Does anybody else find this a little bit odd? Am I the only one that finds this stretches credulity? It does. It doesn't stretch my credulity to the, face, to the point of unbelief because I believe this is God, so it's a, it's a small thing. But my point is, this is weird. This doesn't happen a lot. This doesn't even happen a lot in the Bible. I'm just telling you, there's a lot of weird things that happen in the Bible. This is up there. This is in the top five. This is really, really odd. Temporal, spatial conversations across space and time with people long dead just don't happen. <laughs> it's telling uh, I'm going to ask you a question. How do Peter, James, and Don know that it's Moses and Elijah? Because he looks like Charlton Heston. What's the matter with you guys? Doesn't we all know that? Don't we? They saw the movie, didn't they? No. It's funny. You, when you read it, you think that, though. You're like, oh, they must have just... Re-. No, they wouldn't have just recognized them. They're talking to Jesus. David and McLaren, stand up. And- just say hi to me when I say hi, okay? Hi, Moses, how you doing? Hi, Chris. Hi, say hi, Jesus. Hi, Jesus. Hi, hi Elijah, how you doing? Uh, great, Jesus. Thanks right. for asking. That's exactly what happened. Do you get it? Do you get it? Because that's the only way they would have known who was there. There's no visual cues here. <laughs> I 
what, what in the narrative now is being put before you across, what, what's being said about Mark's place with Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, and Ruth, and First and Second Samuel, and Kings, and what's, what did he just say? Where did, what did Mark now locked into? God's story from all of time. And this is a confab of the leaders, early leaders of the church, Peter, James, and John, are having a confab, a, a, like a, this is like the a early Christian convention, I guess, an early, an early you know, high level, the highest level leadership meeting you could have in Christian history between Moses, Elijah, Peter, James, and John, the three of the greatest apostles with two of the greatest leaders of the Old Testament, all with Jesus. And then, so he has the last word, God the Father speaks. <laughs> it's kind of wild. You know, God the Father closes it down. This is really cool. What's the purpose, though? What's beneath the surface of time? Beneath the surface of history? In the last 200 years, there have been deep speculations about what lies under the purposes and engines of history. The most famous, the most successful of those theories is Marx. And Marx would say to you that you don't, what you perceive is not really, what's under the surface is economics and the struggles of the classes. And that belief, by the way, has been adopted deeply by our time and our generation. It has been adopted in many new ways. It's actually a form, it's a form of what's called Hegelian philosophy, that spirit, that time and history is in cycles, ongoing cycles of the unfolding mind of God. And it's, I think it's garbage. I was just saying all that philosophical stuff so Ben will have something to think about. <laughs> He's our philosophy major from college. But these theories about history had extraordinary power. They affected all of the theological thinking so that people tried to take an evolutionary model of the scripture. Did you know that? And in fact, they tried to imagine that during the primitive days, Elohim is plural, for example, the name of God, and, and, and early days in the Old Testament, they were more polytheistic, and then they moved to monotheism. And the idea is that there's a progression, and a moral, spiritual progression, an unfolding where man reaches God, where man ascends, where man begins to grasp, begins to open, begins to describe who God is. But that is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible does not teach that man found God. The Bible teaches that God went after man. It's under the surface. The Marxist insights, some of them are valuable. Some of these, sometimes they see things, but they don't really see what's under the surface of time. And what we learn in this confab of Moses and Elijah is that God has been active and working and moving, and that under the surface of history, which can look so crazy, right? It can look so random. It can look so purposeless that there has been an ongoing march of the glory of the eternal God to save men and women and to rescue. <laughs> and it's, it's advancing. And Christ is on it. And he's on the track, and, and he's going to advance it with enormous power and certainty at the cross. And he wants to pull back, pull it back, so you can see it. Um, they say hindsight is twenty twenty. When people say that, 
They're often talking about some mistake they saw, or, oh, wow, you know, if I'd gone there and taken that job, or if I had married that woman, or if I'd done this, you know, if I'd gone to this city, if I'd, you know, or this would have been different, and, and I'm glad I did this and that. But I'm not interested in that kind of hindsight of what, what ifs and would have and could haves and should haves, because it's kind of pointless. But I am interested in the hindsight of what? I am interested in the hindsight where we become perceivers of how God, our Father, in our, in our time, in our history, is what? He's been under the surface. He is such a kingly, amazing God that he has been crafting and moving with purpose and plan and pleasure and joy to take you as a man and take you to the place he wants and you as a woman to take you to the place of this now, where you are now, and his plans have never been thwarted, neither can they be. If his plans can be thwarted, then he is not God. <laughs> or he's not much of one. And this is a promise across time that, that Peter, Jesus, and John will remember later. And they do remember later. And he tells them, don't talk about this until later. Because later it's going to make sense that I have been and will continue to all the way 2,000 years later, oh, half a world away, I will continue to march with my purposes into a city that everybody says is going to hell in a handbasket. Right? And I'll do it in Dylan, and I'll do it in Peter, and I'll do it in Mew. I'll do it in my, my I'll do it. So let's, and so what I'd like to do, what we ought to do together, is it's really helpful to mine our stories for the places we see God put. Maybe there have been Moses and Elijahs in our lives, haven't there? There have been lawgivers who have taught us, and there's been people who spoke prophetically. There's been people like this, hasn't there? And we need to identify them and look what God is doing. I think you need, I want to hear stories from you about all the places God took you and protected you. All the times and places, even before you knew him. Um, my dad, uh, when my dad, my dad um, got busted for trafficking internationally, and uh, in '63, what he said, you know, but God, but God was there, because that meant that 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 ended his life in drugs, and he turned to Buddhism. And the Buddhism took him out of that world, and a lot of people died after they left it. A lot of people got into heroin, OD, and all that experiment, and, he, and then he moved to Buddhism. And then Buddhism sequestered them, and they became isolated. And God was there. God was using that. He was putting it in position, putting them in place to fail and to be alone and isolated and then poor. Then after a homelessness for a year, again, they came back afraid, isolated, and everything. And then there was a man there, a man. And he said, come, come, stay with us. Stay with us. Stay with us. And they came to Christ. That man was a Christian who brought them into his home. Why the story? My dad recalls the story of his, his story. He recalls this really. He remember, did uh, anybody read the, the line, uh, the Chronicles of Narnia? We, we're fairly familiar. It's like a very familiar mythos to us. Very beautifully written. I recommend it to you. It could teach you more about the gospel than many a preacher. Um, but I remember my dad reading the stories, and my dad would get really wound up sometimes when he was reading the stories. Like they would say something to him, and the story that I remember this very clearly was the children, I forget which children in which book, are following Aslan, I forget where, but following Aslan through the fog. 
And they're just following his tail, and they're just following his tail, and they're just following it through the fog. And they wind and they weave through the fog. They can't see to the right or to the left through the fog. They're just following Aslan through the fog. And as they get through, the other, they get through the fog, Aslan disappears, and the fog lifts. And they turn around, and they've been walking along a cliff edge by the sea for miles. And I remember my dad reading that and saying, you know what? That's my life. He is the Lord of time. And under the surface of our story is his work. He'll bring us to another country to find him. He'll do whatever it takes to all his own. Finally, finally then, what I want us to have joy in. Below the surface of weakness and time, Below the surface, what is there is victory. Um, metamorphosis is real. Metamorphosis is real. I, you know, I, and when you, if you go to the self-help section of any, any bookstore, um, they tend to be huge. There's, it's, it's a billion, billion dollar industry. And I think change is something we're all hungry for. We just are. And I, I mean, I, and I, and I, it's funny how there's a whole, there's a whole marketplace that built on feeding on people, hunger, people's hunger for change, you know, change. Maybe I just want to change how much I make, change my station in life, or maybe I want to change the kind of people I like. Why do I always attract people that destroy me? Or maybe I want to change uh, how I think and how I become a more productive person. Or maybe I want to change my sexual orientation. I mean, it's all there, and if, and it's all there for, for us to look at. There's all these hungers out there for some sort of change to happen. And that human desire is because below the surface of who we are, <laughs> we know there's a problem. And, it, and, we're, and we're so busy, and it's the number of, you can always tell who's really messed up because they, come, they become therapists. Uh, is any therapist here? Am I, I, uh, you always tell who's, uh, most messed up people I've ever known are therapists. I'm trying to think, is there any therapists here? Oh, I'm giving you a hard time too. They should say amen, because uh, <laughs> why do I say that? Uh, because one of, the, one of the best ways to deal with being messed up, when you discover, as you will discover, as I have discovered after 40 years of walking with God, is that you can't change yourself. And so one of the ways to hide from that is to do what? Try to change other people. Yeah, let's go do it. I think it's so funny that there are books about changing other people all the time. You know, like, well, that's the way we want. I'm going to go help people get changed. And the problem is, you can't, I can't change myself. I can push other people around to be transformed. We are being invited into Christ's victory. And to have it, and to have the victory of a transformed body. Who doesn't want a transformed body? I know some of us are close. And maybe we're feeling, you know, I don't need that much change. <laughs> but some of us aren't. And, 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 and the idea of a transformed, a radiance. I mean, you're going to glow, brother. You're going to glow, sister. There's, a, well, there's, a, there's the strange nature of resurrected flesh. It's so weird when Jesus rises from the dead. People try to touch me. He so don't touch me yet. I have an ascent to my father. I'm a new thing. And man, that's wild. I mean, he is about a transfer. And, and that it begins by faith in him. And in many of us, is being worked out. And some of it's in weakness. And, it's being, and we're supposed to plot it in time with our eyes fixed 
on the glory of Jesus Christ. What I want to do, and that's what he's teaching them in the narrative to do, and what Christ is wanting to show them is fix your eyes upon Christ. In other words, get in your imagination and your mind, read Revelation 1, read Isaiah 6, which we read together in worship, and let it fuel for you an accurate vision, because it is, an accurate vision of who this person is as he truly is, incandescent, powerful, majestic, and risen from the dead. When my body is finally marred by worms and decay and my bones die, my bones turn to dust, I have nothing to fear because he was transfigured. He showed, he showed us who he was in his glory, and I'm going to fix on that glory for all my hope, all my dreams, and all my power, all my purpose. You know, for every one look at your weakness and the looks back across time and your regrets and then discovery, this is the place I finally want to live. Uh, but we go back, and this is important because we're going to struggle with this. We're going to struggle with death, weakness, and decay in our, in our own lives and suffering and depression. And we're, we're going to have to mind and understand our lives better in time, based in time to see what God is doing. But you know where I really want to keep facing all the time? I want to face I want to see, I want to perceive, either an imagination, thought, or dream. I want to perceive with, my, with the mind's eye of faith just what it looks like for Jesus to be so shiny, <laughs> so beautiful, and so powerful, and that that Jesus now stands right now, available to me right now, as a state, right now, powerful, right now, right now, right now. Right now, I believe it's so right now, that's the reason I even get up here to talk. Because right now, right now, he is transfigured. And one day, I will be like him. Let's pray. Father, we, we, we need this. We have a... Uh, some of us are in a place of tremendous weakness in our lives, and uh, it's humbled us, humiliated us. We, uh, we struggle with um, mental issues and emotional issues and spiritual issues. And we so want to, you to be at work under the surface. I thank you that when it looks, when it's darkest <laughs> in our lives, it's a holy place where your power is being worked. Thank you. Would you work that power right now in some people who are struggling with darkness, Father? Right now. Let your Holy Spirit rest on the men and women in our, in our community right now who are struggling with a sense that you're not there. And let them see you. Father, some of us have stories from our family of origin, uh, from when, before we came to you. Some of us have stories of failure and regret. Some of us have stories where we saw how you took care of us over and over again, how you, you were always putting people in the right place at the right time, and you answered desperate prayers we had, and people were there. Father, help give us a good vision, and help us to see, and help us to walk in the story of Moses and Elijah and Peter, James, and John, and have rejo just rejoice that then there's no force in history uh, 
There's no force under the surface that compares to your mighty, sovereign will. And I give glory to you for it. And finally, I pray that today you would reveal your victory to us. Reveal your victory to us so that we can have joy that have risen from the dead. You, we, will be, we will be raised. Quell the, di- the doubting hearts that are so hungry for transformation. Quell those who have given up and gotten cynical. Let them, let them turn their hearts to you. Uh, we repent of cynicism and unbelief and hard-heartedness and, and, uh, and love of sinning. And we want to be transformed. So we ask now for the presence and the power and the filling and the anointing of the Holy Spirit to do that. We ask for that in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. I got an amen from Paul. That's awesome. All right. (laughs) On the night he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus Christ took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Take and eat. In the same way, he also took a cup of wine, saying, this is my my blood. This is the cup of the covenant shed for the forgiveness of sins. Take and drink. We are told as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. He said, do this and remember me. Here on either side, the darker darker cups are, are, are red wine, and the center cups, there's 15 cups here, are grape juice if you prefer it. And here we have these crackers are gluten-free. And this is, uh, looks like a delicious loaf of bread. So uh, that's our, this is our table. Now, um, what's below the surface here? (laughs) What's below the surface? All that is is juice and wine and bread. But below the surface by faith, is nothing less than a presence of grace and more grace for sinners who know Jesus. And that's why you're invited to this table by faith. And if you know Jesus, if you've peered below the surface, if you know now that below the surface of your life he has healed you and transformed you, if metamorphosis is the hunger of your heart and what you know God has done by the presence of his power and love, this is your table. And below the surface of this table is nothing less than the almighty grace of an eternal God. Amen. Hallelujah. Now, I I always give words of warning here, though. Some of you are skeptics. Some of you are still cynics. Some of you are still watching and wondering how anybody could believe there's nothing but bread and wine up there or that, gee, God is anything real. I respect your unbelief. I really do. I mean, I, I I can't fix that, nor do I want to try, but I want to continue to tell you about the Jesus I know and the Jesus revealed in the Bible. But until such time as you have saving faith, just watch us. Watch us and envious. Watch us and ask God to somehow make it real to you. There are prayers printed in the bulletin for you to pray while you're sitting there. Finally, and those skeptics, I want you to hear this, because some of you might be skeptical about Christians. I want you to hear this, those of you who are skeptics. If there's anyone here, man or woman, who thinks that are a good person, who thinks they're righteous, who thinks they're worthy of God, you are forbidden from this table. This is not your table. This is not a table for good religious people. Christianity is not a religion. 
for good religious people. It's a religion of grace for sinners. And those who think they're righteous are forbidden. Honestly, those who think they're righteous, good people, are not worthy to sweep up the crumbs that I made when I tore the bread. Having broken the bread, he said, take and eat. This is my body, broken for you. Then he said, take and drink. His blood shed for the forgiveness of sin.